0: Hey, all, let's talk about safety. And when I trained exotic animal trainers, for example, at the National Zoo, this is a huge, huge, huge subject and something that I spent a lot of time on. So, for example, when I learned that I was going to be responsible for bears, not just bears, but five out of six kinds of bears, including grizzlies and polar bears. I had to really study, how do you stay safe around bears? If a keeper accidentally got stuck in an exhibit with a bear, what are their chances of living through it? Spoiler alert, not good. What could I do to mitigate that risk? How how can you do that on a daily basis? Can you, uh, let's say in the case of this particular exhibit, it curved around underground so that the line of sight was not straight. If you were standing at one end of the, you know, behind the exhibit's holding area, you could see down half of the exhibit, but not down the whole exhibit. So if there were a bear out in the holding area, that bear could be awaiting you just past the halfway mark. And by the time you noticed, it would be too late for you to safely get away and all of the exhibits and so forth are built with safety in mind there's moats to keep the animals from being able to reach the visitors even the bars in the doors of the cages are specially designed so the animal can't pull you through if if they get a hold of you But can't pull you through is a relative concept, turns out. For example, there was a case of a polar bear that was getting fed grapes by his keeper and managed to get the end of her finger and ended up being able to seriously damage her arm by pulling her arm through a space that was less than two inches wide. We we didn't think that could be done, but it did happen. So we plan ahead of time. We try to set things up with safety um, margins. For example, all zoos generally have double barriers between the public and the animals, so that if the animal were to get out of their main exhibit, they would still not have direct access to the public. And we do that by designing things behind the lines so that we can see the animals that there are. um, Even in that area that I described where you couldn't see down the whole line, there was the option to lock a gate across the exhibit at the halfway point. That wasn't very convenient for people working there, but it was possible. Uh, they use electric fences. They um, had safety backup things like extinguishers. Extinguishers can throw a bunch of CO2 dust, or not CO2 dust, um, baking soda on an animal and kind of, you know, dampen out whatever's going on sometimes. Anyway, this isn't about how to be safe at a zoo. This is about something more basic. But I wanted to touch base on how complicated it is. And what kind of a subject it is for anybody dealing with exotic animals. It's huge, huge. Like even a person that's um, diving with a, an orca or a dolphin, that animal has to be constantly accommodating us in the water. In order for us to be safe in the water with them, and you know, obviously we're at a severe disadvantage with these animals if we go in the water, and yet we're almost always safe. So, for everybody that works with animals, I have eleven things to consider to say to stay as safe and cozy as possible with all your animals. So I'm gonna list them real quick, and then we'll go back and talk about each one. One is respect. Two is an oblique approach. Three is start over a barrier. Four is safety backup. Five, randomize. Six, minimize stress. Seven, achieve the correct mental state. Eight, lead the ant, lead or inspire the animal to drive the training process. Nine, stay present, keep the animal in the present. Ten, explain and give the animal time to process what you're saying. And eleven, an extremely important one, ask permission, and honor the answer. All right. So let's go back. Respect. Well, I talk a lot about this all the time. I believe that we do our best work with animals when we are very respectful of them, where we think about not just what is fair as far as, you know, is this a fair task to ask this animal to do, but also Uh, People are going to say, oh, that's anthropomorphizing. Okay, so be it. But just hear me out. Treat the animal the way you would like to be treated. Don't humiliate them. Don't have jokes at their expense. Don't dismiss them. Don't ignore them. Approach them as important, honored, respected, colleagues, and go forward from there. I can't overestimate or overemphasize how important this is. What I saw in my own work with animals is animals that started out being aggressive soon changed and became very protective of me. And one of the stories I tell a lot is where um, I was walking through the gray seal exhibit and a female gray seal just goes, ah, as she turns toward me, probably not even realizing I was right there. And my hand grazed along her teeth and she instantly flipped away, like literally gagging. She did not want to automatically snap at my hand. And she went, beyond to make sure that that didn't happen. And I, of course, you know, explain, I get it. I That wasn't your fault. I, we're fine. So, of course, she didn't get in any kind of um, trouble for that. And she didn't deserve to be in any trouble. She was really responsive, responsible, and very um, careful, careful of me. Now the sea lions were the same, very different kind of animals, less overtly aggressive, but more or just as much of a tendency to grab fish. So during the training process, I taught them that all the fish was theirs. I wasn't going to eat their fish, but it was theirs when I turned it over to them. If it's sitting in the bucket, it's not theirs yet. If it's in my hand, it's not theirs yet. So when I proof this, it turns out that I would swim with the sea lions frequently. And one of the animals was, I don't know, she inspired me. It was Maureen. Maureen was always playing jokes on me. Like the time she pushed me into the water. Yeah. Well, anyway, so I took butterfish and put their tails between my fingers. And so I could have one, two, three, four butterfish hanging from my hand. Each hand, I could put them between my toes. These are little fish about this long and one of the favorites of the sea lions. And then as I... was explaining to the assembled audience, I went out to the island to do some training on the island. How am I going to get fish out to the island? I could have put them in a bag, but that would be so much less dramatic. So instead, I set out swimming. Now, it wasn't like I just did this one day. I taught the animals that I would do this and, you know, what I hoped for from them, etc. And what they did was exactly what we talked about during training. They swam right along with me to the island, but they faced away from me. And I now know that's a sign of an animal that's committed to doing the right thing, but isn't quite sure they can withstand the temptation. So I went out swimming to this island, doing a modified side stroke with lots of fish, and then got out there, flopped my fish up onto the island, pulled myself out, and commenced to do a training session. And no sea lion came anywhere near to grab my fish, and they patiently awaited while I handed them out their fish. But they had to know that I would make sure that each one got the right fish, the right share. They were protected from the other sea lions. This is a lot of complexity that goes into this safetyness. But the animals, when you respect them, will often repay you with respect and with care. Now, just like with the bears, that's not all we do. And with many of the animals, we never plan to go in the water or any place else with them, like the bears. Nonetheless, if I were to end up in a situation with a bear, I would want to know that I had treated them with respect all the time. Some animals, by the way, are known for waiting for an opportunity to get even. So... Let's just not create reasons for them to want to get even. Okay, now a second thing is an oblique approach. Many, many animals, including humans, consider it uh, impolite to stare or to point or to focus. So in general, when you approach an animal Just turn a little to the side. Look a little down. You're still watching everything they do. You get your center of gravity just so. Your knees are slightly bent. You're ready to move. But you don't approach like this. You approach like this. And that will take a lot of stress out of the situation. Now, in addition to that, I like to approach over a barrier at least until I get well into training. There's so much I can do over a barrier and it doesn't cost me anything. And while I'm working over the barrier, the animal is creating a history of success, a history of enjoying what we do. I'm not imposing on him. I'm not going in there. I'm not making him feel like, well, what's she going to do next? Maybe she won't stop there. What does she have in her pockets? Maybe she's going to take it away from me. None of that comes up because it's just not part of the equation. They're on one side of the barrier. I'm on the other side. All of our interactions are optional. Uh, If the animal meets me, it's because they choose to. And we can name body parts, directions, numbers, duration, um, lots more than that. And we can do it so quickly. I can train faster over barrier than I can in direct contact for lots and lots of concepts and vocabulary. Okay, so that was number three, train over a barrier. Four, safety backup. Now, safety backup includes things like having a radio. So I'm not saying you should do all of these things, but these are things that can provide you with safety backup. Carrying a radio, or I guess your cell phone, as long as you're not going to be in the water. Um Devices like noise horns that will discourage an animal from coming towards you. How about a pet convincer? Uh, It could be a bottle of diluted vinegar water. It could be some kind of a post or pole. There's a lot of animals that are very influenced by how tall somebody is, how tall the trainer is. And if the animal starts to, you know, come forward into our space with a lot of them, if we just raise a pole, it will stop that process. If we move into their space, it can stop that process. Uh, people could use a leash. You can spin a leash in front of you like a helicopter blade. Now you have to pick your safety back up that's appropriate for the situation you're going in. Like a pet convincer or an air horn could be very good for walking down the street with a dog. I am not going to recommend it for um, bears, okay? And one of the best safety backups is to work with another person, to always have another person on site that can help if something starts to go wrong. So safety backup is extremely important. Now, equally important is to randomize. It turns out that we know that there are two major places where trainers get killed or injured when working with the animals. One is when the animals are arguing and we get in the middle of it. And another is we leave and they're not ready for us to leave. And not only do we leave, we take our treats with us. And that can really make an animal angry. uh, Depending on how you set things up, and so this is another reason randomizing is important. You can create a sense of entitlement that can be lethal. I saw lots and lots of people increase and create this entitlement with horses because they were following a rule that said that every time you clicked, you owed that animal a food reinforcer, even if you accidentally clicked when they were doing the wrong thing. First of all, that just is not needed because the whole idea there was that you had to keep the connection really strong between this click and the food. But the reality is that you actually make a stronger persistence. You make the animal more persistent. If you don't have reinforcement for every single click, that's the first thing. The second thing is when you randomize your food, when you're, you know, bridging the animal, then you can do this skillfully and totally prevent the animal from having food entitlement. Um, With food entitlement, sheesh, they had a killer whale at SeaWorld and one trainer threw a fish to another trainer kind of as a joke. And the killer whale did not think it was funny. And he came right out of the water and had the trainer that got the piece of fish that I guess he figured was for him, had him up against a training wall. And this is really, really disheartening because the the whales got the best of all the trainers and you know, the best training efforts, all this kind of thing. How did this go so wrong? And this whale was out of performance for an entire year. It turns out all that had to happen for that to get fixed was for feeding to be randomized. You don't get a piece of fish for every little thing you do. You get fish or other reinforcers periodically. And you never know when that makes it important to always do the best that you can. Okay. So randomize. Now here is other stuff, not even safety, but other reasons to randomize. Have you ever noticed it's a pain in the neck when every time you pick up your keys, your animals start panting and barking and whining and running to the door or you start to put your Jogging shoes on, same routine, or it's time for dinner and everybody starts lunging around and, you know, irritating each other and barking and whining. And the fact is, we create all those problems. We create all those problems by creating a rigid expectation of food with no dependence on the animal's behavior. Fortunately, We know how to fix them also, but let's just not do it wrong in the first place. So randomize. That means when you're at home, periodically pick up your keys and do something totally random with them. Pick up food and do random things. Um, With my marine mammals, I would often, with all the animals really, Go to their exhibit, talk to them for a few minutes, ask them for a couple of behaviors, throw some food in, go to a different side, throw food in over the top, go back in with them, come out. They never knew what I was going to do. And they were fine with me coming and going. And I also tried to make sure that their lives were always interesting, you know, that that they didn't just have this one training session to look forward to. In fact, if you came to the National Zoo to visit, wait, if you did and you hear this, please comment because I want to know where you are and who you are. But do you all remember that I used to set the sea lions up to do relay races and they'd be out on exhibit running the relay races by themselves. Now, I'd be there in spirit because there was a uh, gap in the rock work in the wall. And I could look between this crevice and watch what the sea lions were doing and talk to them and encourage them and praise them for doing the right thing, bridge them, give them more explanation, make suggestions. But they were doing the hard work themselves. And I wasn't even on exhibit. Is that cool or what? Those are the kinds of things we would do to keep life interesting. Okay. So that was randomized. Now, another thing that's important is to minimize stress. An animal needs enough stress that they're challenged and they want to get up in the morning and things are interesting. And then after that, they don't really need any. They need to feel confident and proficient and like they can navigate anything that's coming. So how can you minimize stress? Take out the uncertainty. Ooh, I'm telling you two different things. I'm telling you to randomize and take out the uncertainty. Hmm. Let me tell you the story that I was thinking about when I put this in my headings. Catching antelope. A vet named Dr. Hawthorne in South Africa in the late 60s wrote an article on how to capture antelope. And he showed that the best way to capture an antelope is to wait till it goes to sleep. So I'll explain. He worked with bushmen, and the bushmen would, you know, get animals all the time. And let's say they darted an animal and he didn't drop all at once, or they had to, you know, catch him further for some reason. Instead of running up and grabbing the animal, even if they could do it perfectly, they were expert animal grabbers and could pick them up and then airlift them to the new place and put them back down gently in 30 seconds. You don't want to do that because the animal perceives that invasion and that violation so acutely that they can die on the spot. It's not that you need to capture antelope quickly and let them go again. It's that you need to not give them the capture experience. So how can you avoid it? You just walk them around and around and around. You stay far enough away that they don't run from you. They just slowly move ahead of you. And after a while, they get tired and they lay down and they go to sleep. And then you can walk up and capture them. And it's not anywhere near as dangerous. So we're seeing in this list of how to be safe with animals, it requires that you have expertise. You have to understand what you're looking at in the animals. You have to understand the possible dangers and you have to balance those in real life. In dance, they talk about dynamic equilibrium, the fact that if you leap through the air and land on one leg, the physical forces are such that they will shatter your kneecap unless you exercise dynamic equilibrium. And that is where your body absorbs that shock and transfers it out as you go forward. So you use forward momentum and so on to just absorb these things and translate them into something beautiful instead of something damaging. And working with animals is similar. You see a stress and you deflect it. You don't create it. You, if you see the animals are too bored, then you up the ante a little bit. So uh, maybe we'll do another podcast on that because it's a really interesting, worthwhile subject. But uh, we'll do that at another time. So minimize stress for. Big, stressful events like captures, moving the animals, oh, moving them as far as transporting them and also relocating them into you know, new homes. Those are very stressful events. Minimize stress if an animal's friend or mate is removed or dies. Okay, now kind of related to stress, is helping the animal achieve the best mental state for what you're doing. If we need to move animals in or out of an area, I'd like them to have calm alertness. I do not want them running and dodging and acting like there's a werewolf after them. I want it smooth and boring. So I'm going to cultivate calm alertness amongst my animals. And we do this in the perception modification process. We literally teach animals to meditate and we teach animals to choose to be calm. And believe me, they can always choose to be otherwise. So let's start them at calm. Also, you're going to have the most efficient training progress because when an animal has a lot of dopamine in their system, they lose fine motor skills and hand-eye coordination, and they literally lose their ability to think and perceive. I myself have noticed that when I was in a really shocked, uh, a shocking situation, Something happened that I really didn't expect. I literally saw blue sparks and could not see for a a few moments. Like I lost my vision because I was so shocked by what I experienced. There you go. So the mental state that I'm always trying to inspire my animals to get into and to stay into is calm, alert. Now, similarly, I want to inspire the animals to drive the learning process themselves. Rather than me going, okay, you can do this. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. I want to say, hey, look at this interesting thing we could do. Are you interested? Would you like to do this? How about the first step would be this? Can we try that? And because in Bridge and Target, we have such rich, efficient ways to describe what we want to the animal ahead of, you know, actually training them. Then we can get virtually zero error training done. Like, and I'm not talking about training where the animal's distracted because he's being lured. And by the way, you can't lure a nail trim anyway. I'm talking about where the animal starts the training process with a clear understanding of what we are trying to accomplish during that training process. And then I set it up and show the animal the pieces and so forth and just appreciate and praise him as he takes it forward. So I'll give you an example with my horse. I'll tell my horse, okay, let's do this movement and we'll walk forward four steps and then turn to the left eight steps in a circle. And then you'll turn away from me on the right for eight steps and we'll meet in the middle and walk four steps forward and eight steps back and then bow. And my horse will simply proceed to walk through that entire sequence. She doesn't look at me. She doesn't show any kind of, you know, hesitance or question like, you mean like this? She simply does it. She's making it crystal clear that she heard what I said. She understands. And now next step, That's a great example of the animal driving the process. We suggest the goal and they make the effort to get it done. That's way better than trying to somehow get an animal to respond in return for food. I use food a lot, but I don't depend on it very much. Okay, now here's another thing that's a mental aspect. Stay present. When you are on your feet with an animal, it is not the time to sit down on the ground or on a chair. It is not the time to talk on your phone. It is not the time to ignore the animal or drop their lead ropes or anything like that because Things can become disastrous so quickly. So stay in the present. Now let's take horseback riding, which is particularly prone to accidents when this doesn't happen. People get on a horse and just kind of ignore the horse and go forward and ride and ride and ride. And maybe the horse kind of dissociates. They're walking forward, but they're in la-la land and not really paying attention. And then all of a sudden, something happens. And it could be something really dangerous, like a car coming towards you. Or it can be something really not dangerous, but still alarming, like a plastic bag blowing through your immediate environment. If the horse has zoned out and some event like this suddenly pulls them back into the presence, they will often bolt. And when a horse bolts, you're sitting there with inertia and they're bolting and they're often going to leave you on the ground or run into something and that can be worse. So how to avoid that? Talk to the animal. Say, hey, do you see that dog at two o'clock? That dog is barking. Shall we go this way? Let's back up. Let's go to the right. Let's, you know, whatever you're gonna do. Um, I like to do training ahead of time so that if I'm going to use some device to discourage that dog, let's say even a whip. The horse understands how this gets used and knows how to cooperate and work with me. So to take it off the horse's back and put it in another context, when I take horses and release them back into their pastures, I will often have a um, like carriage or lunge whip with me. And if there are horses that are more dominant than the horse I'm returning in, then... I will first of all clear the gate and okay so this doesn't mean that I'm using a whip to drive horses away like I'm not whipping horses I'm using the whip as a cue that shows them exactly the diameter that I need them to be away but While the other horses are taught to go outside of that diameter, the horse that I'm walking in learns to walk under the whip. So the animals learn, okay, if I'm the one being walked, then I come under the whip and that's safe and comfortable. And if I'm a horse that's not being walked, I need to stay outside the diameter of the whip. Easy, easy to do and really, really makes things more safe. And, um, you know, teaching them to cooperate with our safety backup processes. And that even includes, if you have a second person working with you, that person should, you know, optimally know the animals, know who to call, know emergency first aid, The animals should be able to work with them directly in most cases. Yeah. So those are all important things. Okay. So stay present and keep the animal in the present. All right. Number 10, explain, explain what you're doing, explain why you're doing it, what you hope to accomplish and give the animal time to process we don't say, I'm going to touch your head as we reach for the head. We say, I'm going to touch your head. Tell me when you're ready. Good, 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 good. Good, as we reach for the head. When I say good, that means I did reach the head. So, I'll do it again. I need to touch your head. Tell me when you're ready. Good, 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 good. Okay. that leads us to the last thing, which is ask permission. Tell me when you're ready. May I touch your head? If the animal is in agreement, they tend to get into a ready stance. The ready stance is a soft focus with the head hanging down on a little to the right most of the time. And they get very quiet because they're waiting for me to execute what I said I was going to do. It makes such a difference to go through this process. My horse, Sarah, is very, very accommodating. If I want to look in her teeth, if I want to clean her eye, whatever, as long as I say, may I clean your eye? May I look at your teeth? And I give her a minute to process what I said and give permission. She gives permission to put her muzzle forwards so that I can place my fingers on her lips and part them and look at her teeth. Or she'll lean her head so that I can reach the ear that I told her I wanted to reach. But there was a time when I asked a Doberman if I could touch his head. And he flipped around really fast and I did not touch his head. There are other situations like that where I've been working with gorillas and you have to be very careful with eye contact with gorillas. And this one male, I didn't look at him directly, but I think somebody next to me might've, but anyway, he came running up and hits the wall with his flat palm and scared the heck out of us. You know, Here's an interesting little note about that trait with gorillas and respect and explanation. And um, I know not to look gorillas or baboons in the eyes, but I found when working with them in person that the sooner I got to the interesting stuff we were going to talk about, that the things I was teaching them, they got interested in the information and they would kind of sidle closer so that we were side by side. And then every once in a while, I catch them looking up at me a little bit. So they were looking at me and I'd look at them a little bit. And the next thing you know, it became very much, like working with people normally, like nobody wants to be stared at, but if you get permission, if you're part of the group, if you are an accepted friend, then things do change. So explain what you're doing, why you're doing it, ask permission, honor that permission. And if you remember the case of Geordie the rhino, part of my asking permission was reminding him that the zoo staff felt like he needed to have his abscess flushed for his own health and safety. And he could either do it consciously or they would put him in the chute or anesthetize him. I just met Jordy. I didn't have a chance to actually show him what a shoot was or show him what anesthesia was. But being an experienced zoo animal, he maybe really knew because Jordy came right over, engaged, and went to work, learning how to do this thing that he had never wanted to do. Okay, so now a recap. 11 steps for safety, work with respect, approach obliquely, work over a barrier to start with, <laughs> always have safety backup, randomize what you do, minimize stress or especially for big important events foster a mental state of calm alertness inspire the animals to drive the process you become the coach and the assistant not the authority figure it's a good job stay present and keep the animal in the present explain with giving the time giving the animal time to process Explain and give time to process. Ask permission and honor that permission. Okay, let me know what you think. Let me know if there's something new that you haven't tried or if you think I left out the most important thing at all. Let me know what it is. All right, see you next time. Thank you.